Hello everyone. Thanks for tuning in and listening to these videos that we've been putting out. Thank you for your encouragement and support as we try to encourage and support you guys from afar. In a few moments we're going to hear Steve uh, preach and teach from Hebrews chapter 6 beginning in verse 13 carrying to the end of chapter 7. We're going to continue along with the Hebrew study that we began before all of this stuff started going on and we are no longer able to meet. Before he does that, I'm going to read a few passages from the Old Testament, Genesis 14 and Psalm 110. These two passages mention a character that's also mentioned in Hebrews, and that character is Melchizedek. So I'm going to read these passages, and then we'll hear from Steve. Hebrews, sorry, Genesis chapter 14, beginning in verse 17. After Abram returned from defeating Kedoliomer and the kings allied with him, the king of Sodom came out to meet him in the valley of Shavath, that is, the king's valley. Then Melchizedek, king of Salem, brought out bread and wine. He was priest of God Most High, and he blessed Abram, saying, Blessed be Abram by God Most High, creator of heaven and earth, and praise be to God Most High, who delivered your enemies into your hand. Then Abram gave him a tenth of everything. Then Psalm 110. A Psalm of David. The Lord says to my Lord, Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. The Lord will extend your mighty scepter from Zion, saying, Rule in the midst of your enemies. Your troops will be willing on the day of battle, arrayed in holy splendor. Your young men will come to you like dew from the morning's womb. The Lord has sworn, and he will not change his mind, you are a priest forever in the order of Melchizedek. The Lord is at your right hand. He will crush kings on the day of his wrath. He will judge the nations, heaping up the dead, and crushing the rulers of the whole earth. He will drink from a brook along the way, and so he will lift his head high. This is the word of the Lord. Let's just pray before Steve preaches. Father, we ask that as we come to your word again, at different times and different places, we pray that you would send your spirit to open up its truth to our hearts and to our minds. We want to know you more, we want to know you better, so that we can love you and serve you as we should. We pray that you'd give us grace to understand and grace and patience through these trying times. And we pray now that you would lift up the name of Jesus in front of us so that we can see him and praise him for who he is. And it's in his name that we pray, amen. Well, this morning I've decided to continue on in our series in Hebrews and one of the reasons for that was I just wasn't sure honestly how many sort of one-off standalone messages I could do over the next number of Sundays. Uh, another reason is that at this point we really have no idea how long it's going to be before we're able to meet together again when we thought that it might be just for two or three Sundays we had one sort of plan in mind, uh, but now it's really indefinitely. Uh, we really don't know when we're going to be able to meet again. So I decided that I'm just going to continue on uh, through the book of Hebrews, and hopefully this will be edifying for all of us. Now, the last time, actually it was the last service that we were all gathered together uh, at the Crestwick building, I looked at Hebrews 6, uh, 1 through 12. And the argument there, of course, is a strong warning 
that you can't fall away. Don't, do not fall away from your faith. Uh, trust in Christ. Uh, don't let go of him for anything. But also recognize that he's the one who holds you. Uh, this next section uh, sort of hangs together. Chapter 6, verses 13 through 20, and then chapter 7, 1 through 28, is a bit of an extended argument about the priesthood of Christ, which is actually what gives us uh, this security that we have. The reason that we hold on to Christ is because of the work that he's done as our high priest to give us hope and to bring us to God. So I want us to look at this section. It's fairly long, so I'm going to try to be succinct, sort of single-spaced in my comments, as it were. And I'm going to read a handful of verses and then make comments about the section and then just sort of walk through the passage together. So that's our plan uh, for this morning. One of the things we're going to see, actually, is that chapter 6, verses 13 through 20, very, very plainly, actually, uh, follow along the section of warning where you're warned, don't fall away. Uh, make sure that you're walking with Christ. The very next section reminds you of the fact that God is faithful. God, God's got you. Uh, Christ is the reason that we have hope. And he's made a way to bring you back to God, even in the most holy place. And so the idea is, don't fall away from Christ, but also don't look to your own strength in order to be secure. Look to what Christ has done on your behalf. So Hebrews 6 verses 13 through 20, I'm really going to encourage you, uh, get a Bible out and follow along uh, with me as I work through this passage. So Hebrews 6, 13, this is the word of God. When God made his promise to Abraham, since there was no one greater for him to swear by, he swore by himself, saying, I will surely bless you and give you many descendants. And so, after waiting patiently, Abraham received what was promised. People swear by someone greater than themselves, and the oath confirms what is said and puts an end to all argument. Because God wanted to make the unchanging nature of his purpose very clear to the heirs of what was promised, he confirmed it with an oath. God did this so that by two unchangeable things in which it is impossible for God to lie, we who have fled to take hold of the hope set before us may be greatly encouraged. We have this hope as an anchor for the soul, firm and secure. It enters the inner sanctuary behind the curtain, where our forerunner Jesus has entered on our behalf. He has become a high priest forever in the order of Melchizedek. And so after being warned about falling away, now the author of Hebrews is going to remind us of how faithful God is. We can trust in God because he's made promises. He's confirmed his promises with an oath, which in many ways was utterly redundant. Not that he needed to give it, but that he gave it to sort of palliate all of our fears and insecurities. Uh, God has given us every reason for us to trust in his faithfulness. So the Lord promised and then confirmed his promise with an oath. This is like the double amen that Jesus will say. The King James Version will translate it, I believe, as verily, verily, I say unto you. Uh, some other translations will, will translate it as truly, truly, I tell you, or very truly, I tell you, sort of the superlative. Uh, when Paul writes to Timothy, he says, here is a trustworthy saying that deserves full acceptance. 
the idea uh, isn't that when Jesus doesn't say, truly, truly, I say unto you, that you know, he might be lying to you or deceiving you. Uh, what he's doing is he's emphasizing, you can count on this completely. And it's not for his own sake. He doesn't need an oath to, to, to be telling the truth. Rather, what he's doing is he's, he's recognizing how weak we are in our faith and our acceptance of what God says. So he's drawing attention to it. He's emphasizing it. It's almost like he says, look, you can take this all the way to the bank. And so God promised Abraham that he would be blessed and that he would have many descendants. And then God also confirmed his promise with an oath. In Genesis 22, God swears by himself. I mean, the text tells us people swear by someone greater than themselves. But of course, uh, no one is greater than God. And so God is actually a self-authenticating uh, source of oath swearing. And there's no one greater by which he can swear than by himself, than by his own name, and then by his own character. So, so for Abraham, again, even though it's utterly redundant and unnecessary from God's perspective, for Abraham's sake, God actually says to him, I will promise you to do this, and I swear by myself that I will do it. This oath puts an end to all argument, as our author tells us. It makes God's purpose very clear, and everything is completely confirmed. So these are the two unchangeable things by which it is impossible for God to lie. His promise in the first place, and the confirming oath in the second place. And he does this so that we who have fled to take hope of the to, we who have fled to take hold of the hope set before us may be greatly encouraged. And maybe today, uh, this is something that we need. We need to be greatly encouraged. I mean, the, the news has not been great. It's sort of been this, this relentless avalanche of bad tidings. And you know, the whole world is in many ways shutting down. Life as we are used to experiencing it in its daily rhythms has been drastically altered for all of us in the last few days. And so when we, when we are cut off from people, when we're isolated, when you know, there, there's issues at work and buying groceries and going out and, and, and socializing and all of those things, you know, we, there, it, it's very natural to feel isolated because you are isolated and alone. We need some encouragement when there's a lot of discouragement. And there's nothing more encouraging in all of the world than reminding yourself of your relationship with God through Jesus Christ and all of the blessings that you have. And there, there, there's nothing that can give you more encouragement than taking your eyes off yourself and your eyes off the circumstances of your life and actually looking at Jesus, actually looking at God, counting the promises of God, uh, recognizing that these promises are confirmed by an oath where God has sworn by himself that he will bless his people, Abraham's offspring. And that Jesus is the one who has brought about the fulfillment of the promises of God. And we have fled to him. Uh, and, and today, uh, even where you are, you know, spiritually, you can flee to God. You can flee to Jesus Christ. If you feel overwhelmed by any circumstance or situation of your life, go to God. Go to Christ. We have fled to take hold of the hope set before us. And we can be greatly encouraged. We have this hope as an anchor, we're told. It's firm and secure. And so for our soul, the anchor is hope. 
What grounds us is hope. What holds us fast is hope. This is one of the reasons why this section follows after the warning section in Hebrews 6, 1 through 12. We don't fall away because to fall away from Christ is to abandon hope. You think of the, of course, uh, very famously, that uh, inscription over the archway uh, going into hell in, the, in Dante's Inferno. Abandon hope, all ye who enter here. Christian never abandons hope. The Christian waits and hopes. The Christian waits and hopes with all of their heart. Hope is our anchor. And it's not the subjective emotion and feeling of hope. It's not just wishful thinking. Our hope is sure and certain because it's grounded in an objective work. And it's grounded in an objective person. It's grounded in an objective role. It's the finished work of Christ. The person, of course, is Christ, and the role is his high priestly mediating work on our behalf. So this hope enters the inner sanctuary behind the curtain. This is talking about the most holy place. This is where the high priest went once a year on the Day of Atonement to provide for the cleansing and purification of sin and for its forgiveness. And so our hope, because our hope is attached to Jesus, when Jesus goes into the most holy place, our hope goes there too. And because Jesus actually brings about the fulfillment of all that the Day of Atonement was, our hope is grounded in the most holy place. It is our hope is grounded in finished atonement. Our sin has been paid for. Our guilt has been removed. And we are purified through the work that's been done on our behalf. And that work that's been accepted to God in the most holy place, if we can't hope in that, if we can't find security in that, then we can't find security or hope in anything. It enters the inner sanctuary behind the curtain where our forerunner Jesus has entered on our behalf. He went into God's presence to provide atonement on our behalf. That's what a priest does. The high priest went in for his people. He has become a high priest forever in the order of Melchizedek. Now, chapter 5, verse 10 says that he was designated a uh, high priest in the order of Melchizedek. Chapter 5, verse 6 quotes from Psalm 110, uh, mentioning that Jesus is a priest forever in the order of Melchizedek. And now we're back to Melchizedek. Chapter 7 is going to be an extended discourse, an explanation of Melchizedek and his significance. Now, for us, we don't really have this issue, but for the Israelites, the biggest question would have been, how can Jesus be a high priest? How can he go into the inner sanctuary? How can he provide atonement when he's not descended from Levi? The high priest was descended from Aaron in the tribe of Levi. Jesus is not a descendant of Aaron. He is not, a he's not from the tribe of Levi. He's descended from David. He's from the tribe of Judah. And so how can Jesus, who's not a Levite and not an Aaronic high priest, how can he do this high priestly work? In fact, by the Old Covenant law, he is barred from serving at the altar. He's barred from the inner sanctuary. He cannot do this priestly work. So how is it that our entire hope for eternal life hinges on the work of someone who can't do the work he said that uh, we're told that he did. There's a logical issue here. There's a logical 
theological problem here. And so the author is going to spend the next chapter explaining how it is that Jesus can actually be our high priest, providing, our, uh, providing atonement on our behalf in the most holy place. He ends chapter 6 by saying he's become a high priest forever in the order of Melchizedek. And then he begins to remind you of who Melchizedek is. This Melchizedek was king of Salem and priest of God Most High. He met Abraham returning from the defeat of the kings and blessed him. And Abraham gave him a tenth of everything. First, the name Melchizedek means king of righteousness. Then also king of Salem means king of peace. Without father or mother without genealogy, without beginning of days or end of life, resembling the Son of God, he remains a priest forever. Now, Melchizedek is only mentioned in the Old Testament in two places, the end of Genesis 14, which uh, Jake read, and Psalm 110, verse 4. So this person is, is not mentioned very often at all, but what we'll see is he's actually vitally important uh, in terms of understanding who Jesus is, but also his greatness is revealed to be greater than Abraham and greater than Levi. After the, after, uh, the victory with Abraham's fighting men in Genesis 14, uh, he's returning from this victory, his conquest and rescue, and he's met by Melchizedek. Uh, Melchizedek brings out bread and wine, Abraham gives him a tenth of everything, and Melchizedek blesses Abraham. In that exchange, it's pretty clear that Melchizedek occupies a superior position even over Abraham himself. Now his name, as is mentioned, means king of righteousness, and king of Salem means king of peace. Just like uh, the name Jacob, you know, he, he, he's a deceitful little rat, not, not our Jake, uh, but Jacob in the Old Testament. Uh, you know, he's a trickster, uh, he, he, he's a deceiver, until he wrestles with God, and then his name is changed to Israel. Uh, he wrestles with God, or he overcomes. He struggles with God. And, and so, Jacob designates his character. Israel designates his character after he wrestles with God. So the names are significant. The names of God, it revealed in the Old Testament, are significant as well. So Melchizedek, his name is being taken as significant. He is king of righteousness and king of peace. Well, who's the king of righteousness and the king of peace? Well, that sounds awfully messianic. And so the author is saying, if you just think of the significance of his name, you'll, you'll sort of hear later on uh, the, the, the sort of qualities of, of the Messiah himself. He's also without father or mother, without genealogy without beginning of days or end of life. Now, this is not to be taken literally. Uh, it, it is not that he literally does not have a father or mother. Uh, it's not that he literally never dies. Rather, one of the things that marks Genesis is a fascination with genealogy and with record of death. That is, really almost anyone who has any important role to play in the book at all you're told who their parents are, you're told about when they were born, you're told about when they died. There's genealogies all over the place, and also records of death. Melchizedek shows up out of nowhere. When he meets Abraham, it's clear he's greater than Abraham, but we're not told who his parents were. 
We're not told uh, when he died. So all this biographical detail that Genesis is fascinated by is entirely absent with Melchizedek. So it looks like he shows up out of nowhere, king of peace, king of righteousness, priest of God most high, greater than Abraham, and he never dies. Now, the author of Hebrews takes all of that silence surrounding the biography and death of Melchizedek, and he says, you know, that, that reminds us of someone, doesn't it? Who's a king of peace and a king of righteousness who really doesn't have beginning of days or end of life? Who doesn't have a regular human genealogy and who's greater than Abraham? Who's a priest of God most high and king of righteousness, king of peace? In other words, the Melchizedek figure is someone who's prophetically pointing forward to the one who will fulfill all that he represents by name, by greatness, and by title. He resembles, he's like the Son of God. It, it's an analogy, it's a metaphor, it's a simile, it's a typology. He remains a priest forever. Just think how great he was. Have you ever done that before? You know, the author says you should, you should stop and think about these things. Think about how great he was. Even the patriarch Abraham gave him a tenth of the plunder. Now the law requires the descendants of Levi who become priests to collect a tenth from the people, that is, from their fellow Israelites, even though they also are descended from Abraham. This man, however, did not trace his descent from Levi, yet he collected a tenth from Abraham and blessed him who had the promises. And without doubt, the lesser is blessed by the greater. In one case, the tenth is collected by people who die, but in the other case, by him who is declared to be living. One might even say that Levi, who collects the tenth, paid the tenth through Abraham, because when Melchizedek met Abraham, G or Levi was still in the body of his ancestor. So this argument basically runs this way. One of the job of the priests in the Old Covenant was to collect the tithes and offerings that people brought to the tabernacle and temple complex. Melchizedek was clearly not descended from Levi, because Levi hadn't been born yet. Uh, in some senses, in terms of Abraham being the ancestor of Levi, in one sense, Levi was still in Abraham's body, actually, at that time. He, he wouldn't be born for centuries. So, the priests collect tithes, Melchizedek collects tithes, but Melchizedek is clearly not from the tribe of Levi. So his ability to collect the tithes isn't, isn't hinging on his Levitical ancestry. Levi, the tithe collector, actually had a great ancestor who was greater than he was in, in this culture, in many ways like the Chinese culture, uh, ancestors are revered. So in the Old Testament culture, ancestors were considered greater than their offspring. They were honored. So Abraham, by definition, not only because he was the father of the faithful, the father of the Israelite nation, but Abraham, by definition, as the ancestor of Levi, is greater than Levi in some ways. So Abraham, who's, is, who's greater than Levi, actually pays the tithe to Melchizedek. He gives Melchizedek a tenth of everything. As in a sense, because Levi is in the body of his greater ancestor, it's like Levi, who collects the tithe from Abraham's descendants, is giving the tithe to Melchizedek. 
the argument is basically this. Look, Melchizedek is even greater than all of the Levitical priests who will ever be born. Because Levi, the eponymous, or the eponymous sort of ancestor of all the priests, already paid the tithe to Melchizedek, showing Melchizedek's superiority. Levi paid it through Abraham. Abraham was greater than Levi. Melchizedek was greater than Abraham because Abraham paid the tithe to Melchizedek and then Melchizedek blessed Abraham and the greater blesses the lesser. This begins to show you that as great as Abraham is, if Melchizedek is greater, Melchizedek is shockingly important. Well worth thinking about. And yet only mentioned in Genesis 14 and Psalm 110. The author of Hebrews now begins to go on with an exposition of why this is so significant. For us, there's an application. If perfection could have been attained through the Levitical priesthood, and indeed the law given to the people established that priesthood, why was there still need for another priest to come, one in the order of Melchizedek, not in the order of Aaron? For when the priesthood is changed, the law must be changed also. He of whom these things are said belonged to a different tribe, and no one from that tribe has ever served at the altar. For it is clear that our Lord descended from Judah, and in regard to that tribe, Moses said nothing about priests. And what we have said is even more clear if another priest like Melchizedek appears. One who has become a priest, not on the basis of a regulation as to his ancestry, but on the basis of the power of an indestructible life. For it is declared, Psalm 110.4, You are a priest forever in the order of Melchizedek. The former regulation is set aside because it was weak and useless, for the law made nothing perfect, and a better hope is introduced by which we draw near to God. And it was not without an oath. Others become priests without any oath, but he became a priest with an oath when God said to him, The Lord is sworn and will not change his mind. You are a priest forever. Because of this oath, Jesus has become the guarantor of a better covenant. The argument advances this way. The Old Covenant system and the Old Covenant law could never bring perfection. It could never actually atone for sin. The priestly sacrificial system could never actually reconcile someone to God. The priests were sinful. The animal sacrifices actually logically had no connection to human guilt. Uh, the, the blood of bulls and goats will be told later will can never take away sin. The reality is the whole system gave us a law or gave people a law they could not obey and could not fulfill. The law required perfection and no one could measure up to it. The, the, sacrifice, the sacrifices built into the law for guilt and failure couldn't actually atone for sin. And the priests who were mediating the law in the sacrificial system were sinners as well. And so perfection simply could not come through this old covenant law. There needed to be something different. What we needed was a priest, a different type of priest, someone who was perfect. But what we're told is when the priesthood is changed, the law must be changed also. This has massive covenant implications uh, for how we read and understand the Old Testament law. When there's a new priest, the law changes. We have a new priest. In the order of Melchizedek, we have a new covenant, which we'll see next week, Lord willing.
And so the law has got to change. It has to change because of the new priest. It's clear our Lord descended from Judah. That is, he comes from the kingly tribe. Priests and kings in the Old Covenant Israel, in Old Covenant Israel had to come from different tribes. You would never have a king from Levi. You would never have a priest from Judah. And yet what we have in our Lord Jesus Christ is the king, and Hebrews already in the first two chapters has established, as son of God, he reigns forever. He is the king. He's descended from Judah. Christ is the king. But how can he be high priest? Kings come from Judah. Priests come from Levi. And you can't have a king who's a priest in that old covenant arrangement. However, before Judah was born, before Levi was born, Melchizedek was a king priest. There was a figure before Abraham who united the roles of king and priest in one person. King of peace, king of righteousness, priest of God most high. And so the author, if he was saying, look, we're looking forward to another person, and, and he's here. We ha now have another person who's king of peace, king of righteousness, and priest of God most high. And in fact, if you're thoughtful, Psalm 110 already tells you that he's going to be a king priest. Because Psalm 110 verse 1 says, The Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand, that is, take the position of reigning, until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. That is, you are a, a royal figure reigning besides Yahweh at his right hand, at his throne, and all of your enemies are, subject, are subjugated to you. They're made subject to you. You dominate them. They're the footstool you put your feet on. Psalm 110 verse 1 is a messianic king image, but the same person who's addressed is addressed in verse 4 as a priest forever in the order of Melchizedek. Psalm 110 is telling you there's going to be a king priest again. Like Melchizedek, he's going to be the Messiah. Now, Psalm 110 is also clearly written after the monarchy is established in Israel and centuries after the Levitical priesthood has been in operation. So even in that Old Covenant era where you have the distinction between kings and priests, you have the psalmist saying, even though we've had these Levitical priests for centuries, they're not the ultimate priestly authority. There will be a great king-priest one day in the order of Melchizedek who will be a priest forever. The Lord has sworn and will not change his mind. You who reign at my right hand as king will be priest forever. So inside of the middle of the Old Covenant history and system, there's already a built-in obsolescence. You're already being told this system is temporary until the king-priest like Melchizedek arrives. Because of this, verse, eight, or verse 19, we have a better hope by which we draw near to God. The Old Covenant kept you out. Stay away from the holy place. New Covenant, because our hope enters behind the curtain with Jesus, the New Covenant draws you in. We have a better hope by which we draw near to God. And it was not without an oath. I mean, that starts to sound a lot like the end of chapter 6, which we already looked at. Oaths and hope drawing near to God. Jesus is the guarantor of a better covenant. He guarantees that it will be fully accomplished and fulfilled. Now, the author says, There have been many of these priests 
since death prevented them from continuing in office. But because Jesus lives forever, he has a permanent priesthood. This is what it was said sort of earlier, too, in verse 16. He, he, he's not priest because of the regulation of his ancestry. He's the priest because of the, the power of his indestructible life. Because of his indestructible life, he lives forever. And so he's our priest forever. He's our king forever. He intercedes for us forever because he lives perpetually. He has a permanent priesthood. Therefore, he is able to save completely those who come to God through him because he always lives to intercede for him. Our high priest can always present the merit of his atoning righteousness and sacrificial blood before God the Father. He lives. He never sleeps. He never slumbers. He lives forever. Because he lives forever, he can always intercede for us. Our intercessor is eternal. Our intercessor is the one who gives us eternal life. And he can plead before God for all of our sin. Look, remember my finished atoning work. Remember that it is finished, that I have accomplished it on their behalf. That's why we're told he can save completely. He's an eternal perfect Savior who saves completely and he saves forever. He's able to save us. You, no matter who you are, no matter what you've done, no matter how, how dark your sin is, no matter how prolonged and protracted, no matter how hard-hearted you have been, Jesus can save you completely by providing for the forgiveness of your sins and giving you eternal life through union with him by faith and his indestructible life. See, we need a high priest. We need a king priest who provides an atoning sacrifice that actually works to bring us to God. This is our desperate need. We need a perfect priest. And verse 26 says, such a high priest truly meets our need. He's the one we need. He's the only one we need. One who is holy, blameless, pure, set apart from sinners, exalted above the heavens. Unlike the other high priests, he does not need to offer sacrifices day after day, first for his own sins and then for the sins of the people. He sacrificed for their sins once for all when he offered himself. For the law appoints as high priests men in all their weakness, but the oath which came after the law appointed the Son who has been made perfect Forever. So here's here's really the great application, verses 26 through 28. This is the one we need for all of those centuries. This is the king priest that everyone needed. He's totally holy, blameless, pure, and set apart. He's exalted above the heavens. I mean, this is this is the, the hyperbolic language of absolute transcendence. Not only exalted to the heavens, exalted above the heavens, over the heavens. No sin of his own. He sacrificed for our sins once for all, just one time, because it actually worked when he offered himself. That's very significant. We'll look at that later in Hebrews. The sacrifice wasn't a bull or a goat. The sacrifice was himself as the Lamb of God. He is both the perfect high priest and the perfect sacrifice. The perfect high priest offers the perfect sacrifice when he offers himself. And he's perfect forever. He has been made perfect forever. Well, what could be better? I mean, what, what could be better than this? The one who actually meets, meets our needs, gives us eternal life, takes care of our sin, and lives forever, reigning over all things. This is our Savior, Jesus Christ, the priest forever in the order of 
Melchizedek. The next chapter, chapter 8, uh, will actually talk to us and show us about the nature of this covenant. What are the better promises that are, that are ours? What's the better law that is ours? What's the better covenant that is ours? Well, Hebrews 8 is all about that. Let me pray, uh, and then you could dispose of the day as you see fit. Father, we, we pray to you and thank you in Jesus' name. We can only come to you in Jesus' name, but in Jesus' name we go all the way into your very presence in the Holy of Holies, and we have a hope, like an anchor that's secure, not in our emotional strength, but our hope is secure because of the object, the, the object of our faith and hope, the objective work of Jesus Christ. He's our sacrifice, he's our king, he's our priest. He's the guarantor of a better covenant. Father, if any are discouraged, help them to be encouraged to see what Christ has done for them. And help us to cling to Jesus as he clings to us. For we ask it in his holy name. Amen. May the Lord bless you.